Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm going to be walking us through Luke chapter 4 today. If you have a church Bible, we'll be on page uh, 807. I'll give you a moment to turn there and to get your notes ready. If you stood before God right now, would you tell him that you deserve to be saved? Probably not. If you're a churchgoer like me, you might come back with one of these phrases. Jesus is my only hope. I bring nothing to my salvation. Kids, you've been taught it in Sunday school. You'd say, Jesus! But, underneath all of your ministry work, all of your books, all of your morning prayers, under all your spirituality, do you really believe that you are totally undeserving and Jesus is your only hope? Or, do you think... Maybe you deserve salvation at least just a little bit. I mean, how do you test something as complicated as the inner beliefs of the human heart? Today, Jesus does. And he's going to fail an entire congregation. And then we're going to take the test and we're going to see how we do. We're going to see how much we think we deserve salvation. We're in Luke chapter 4 and this is the first account from Luke of Jesus' public ministry. Now this week marks a transition in our sermon series. Look at the map of Luke in your, your bulletin. It's on the left side. Where we just came from was point one. We took several weeks to make this point. Luke giving the credentials of Jesus that he was God's saving son. Son of God sent to save. That's where we've gone so far. And this week, we now begin the fundamentals of the teaching ministry of the saving Son of God, Jesus. And first, we're going to talk about his teaching. What did he teach? And so this is a critical week because this week's text, the first account has been put here by Luke very specifically to set the tone. He wants the reader to understand exactly what Jesus is teaching so that we don't miss it. So let's begin the teaching ministry of Jesus. I will begin with verses 14 through 22 of chapter 4. This is point one on your outline. Let me read 14 through 22. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went all through the surrounding country. And he taught 
in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? We'll stop there. The first thing that Luke tells us in this section is that salvation and judgment are here. And I say that because that's the first thing Jesus tells us in his teaching. Now, Luke sets the scene in verses 14 through 15 by helping us understand that Jesus actually already has a public ministry established outside of his hometown. This isn't his first teaching, but it is the first one that Luke zooms in on. So why does he do that? Why does he zoom in here? Well, this is the beginning of the event that sets the tone. This is the critical teaching that we need to see, and it happens, of all places, in Jesus' hometown. Not in the surrounding areas, maybe more diverse. No, this is the synagogue. This is his hometown. This is the home team. And what Jesus does in verse 16 is he gets up, as he's done before, to read scripture, and they give him the writing of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And specifically, Jesus goes to the portion of Isaiah that we know as Isaiah chapter 61. So what's so significant about reading Isaiah, specifically this part of Isaiah? Why does it cause such a stir in the congregation? Well, if you remember our study through the book of Isaiah, which happened last year, and I think part of the year before, it was quite long. Um, This is a chapter of great hope for Israel and for the Jews in the synagogue. So let me read again and explain what Jesus is quoting in these two verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's what began to cause a stir. Kind of a happy stir. The poor and blind captives in Isaiah 61. Are the people of Israel. And the congregation listening to Jesus today here, they've been in captivity and oppression too. They're on the back end of it. 
And in total, this has gone on for over 500 years and on and off before that. And so here in, June, here, here in, in, in Rome, Rome, they await salvation. They want God to fulfill his promise by saving them and then judging their enemies. And to hear this portion of Isaiah from the up-and-coming hometown boy, maybe this is finally the year of the Lord's favor. Maybe today. Now, it won't be that neat and clean. Not if you and I remember the main point of Isaiah, which the preachers here repeated all throughout our sermon series. Do you remember it? I think we might have it up there. If not, I'll read it. God judges all. We said Yahweh, but it means God judges all. But he restores all who trust his appointed king, servant, and conqueror. That's the main point of Isaiah. Now, what's their main point? What are they awaiting? I mean, they want the restoration. They know they've been judged. Maybe. But, what about the one whom God has appointed to bring the restoration? They haven't met that person yet. Look at verse 20. Jesus, as he gets done reading this huge text, he rolls up the scroll and sits down and every eye is fixed on him. I mean, they've heard his observation of the text and they love it. We're about to see his interpretation of the text. Jesus says this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is big. You know what Jesus has just said? Jesus has just publicly identified himself as the one who is coming to fulfill Isaiah 61. So he's saying salvation and judgment are here. I'm Isaiah 61. He couldn't be more direct. And this causes a bit of astonishment, or rather look at verse 22, because you you might hear the words, they marveled, and you think, oh, cool, you know, like this cinematic universe, but that's not what marveling actually means, marveling is like, they're astonished, it's more of like a, at best, like a nervous chatter, isn't this Joseph's son, they say in verse 22? I mean, their response shows they understand his claim perfectly. Not what did he say? They understand it, but they don't quite buy it. I mean, many of these people saw him in diapers. This is his hometown. And their nervous chatter begins to reveal what they really believe. 
Now, Jesus, being the son of God, he knows the hearts of everyone in this synagogue. And so he's beginning in this quotation to draw out their beliefs. And all he's doing is reading and interpreting scripture. He's not saying anything radical. And so he continues his sermon and he's going to begin to show them from scripture what every good teacher of the word must not fail to do. He must show the people how undeserving they are of salvation. So let's continue with verses 23 through 27. Your second point, the undeserving get salvation. And Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. What we've heard and you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. To a woman who is a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. And none of them was cleansed. But only Naaman the Syrian. What does all that mean? Well, let's start with this. The second thing that Luke says here is that salvation is for the undeserving. I'm going to show you how Luke sets that up. First... Jesus exposes their proud, deserving hearts, and then he makes a connection to Israel's history of proud hearts. First, let's look at the hearts of the people in the synagogue. Look at the the proverb he quotes in, in verse 23a, physician, heal thyself. It's kind of a local proverb. I'm actually not sure what this means. But I think you and I can agree that that's not a compliment, right? Physician, heal thyself, not a good thing. But the latter half of verse 23 is very, very clear. What you've done in Capernaum, do here. Jesus is exposing their hearts as believing that. Here's what he means. It's like saying this, hey, Jesus, you've already got an established ministry over there in Capernaum. You're bringing good stuff. And we want that good stuff, too. Give it to us. Which is another way of saying we deserve it. Right? Give it to me. Here's how he responds to that in verse 24. He says, that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Now, I'm not going to explain this verse because the story he, told, he tells next does the explaining, but I'm just going to say this. What he's doing right now is he's making himself into a living example of the problem Israel has had all along. 
and sort of really hit home, he tells him this story. And this story is not from Isaiah. It's actually to the book of Kings. And I'm going to explain this story quickly and, and what it means, but I'll have the, the text on the screen. I'll sort of sum it up quickly. Elijah and Elisha were prophets who spoke out against the proud and sinful people of Israel. Israel wasn't turning to God. And so, instead, when Elijah and Elisha spoke against them, Israel turned on Elijah and Elisha. So, God sent Elijah and Elisha away, and they started healing and ministering to the enemies of Israel instead of Israel. They left. God saved someone else. In fact, Naaman the Syrian was a military leader who struck down many of Israel's finest. But while many in Israel were laid low, sick, for three years, the enemies of God were saved. Jesus is telling them something loud and clear with this example. He's revealing their hearts. Israel, you never had humble hearts. You thought you deserved salvation. So I saved undeserving people. And you rejected the prophets of old, just as you today in this synagogue are rejecting me in your hearts. And he's saying to them, I am Isaiah 61. I am God's appointed king, servant, and conqueror. Salvation is here, and I'm bringing it, but not to you. And what's so sad is that many of these people have gone to synagogue their whole life. They've prayed. They've read scripture. Maybe they've led the singing. And yet, they won't get the salvation that they're after. Let's see what Jesus is going to give them instead. We're going to read verses 28 through 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The last thing that Luke is telling us is that the deserving, air quotes, get judgment. They don't get salvation. 
While all the people in the surrounding area of Galilee have, have accepted Jesus, his own did not receive him. They did to Jesus just as Israel did to Elijah and Elisha, another prophet rejected. I mean, look at verse 29. They want him dead. But he, and this was always strange to me when I read this, he just walks through them on his way. Now, it's not clear if he did this miraculously, but I, I personally don't think he did because they, they wanted parlor tricks earlier and he didn't oblige. Why would he now? I mean, if he would have turned into like a ghost or something, he might have been like, wait a second. <laughs> I think that's a guy. <laughs> so I don't know how it played out. I think he showed some restraint. <laughs> But let me not distract from the point of what's happening here. Jesus has targeted the proud, deserving people and given them judgment instead of salvation. And as they reject him, I think we see here the strongest judgment that God could give to a sinner. He walks away. I mean, this is the heart of what we find in later writings of the Bible, like the book of Romans, where Paul explains the gospel. God judges the spiritually blind by just handing them over to their sin. Man, you really, you really, really want that money and you're willing to steal? All right, fine. Go for it. You really want that boyfriend, even though he doesn't even know how to spell Jesus? Fine. Take him. And so, they get worse and worse. And so for many in Israel here, this unexpected Jesus is not welcomed by the Jews as the son of God, but he's rejected as an enemy of God. And yet, they cannot stop his mission. He just walks right through them. And he goes somewhere else. Perhaps later, though, they might have looked back after his death and resurrection and interpreted things a bit differently. How might the original audience interpret this story? I mean, Theophilus, that's the Roman official this was written to many years later. He's mentioned in chapter 1. He would have been stunned. Because this text would communicate to him some really important things. First, in the fundamental teachings of Christ, that Christianity was really no threat to Rome. On the other hand, Christianity was a huge threat to Judaism. 
Or you know what? Maybe it might communicate something a little more. Because I don't know the heart of Theophilus, even though Jesus does. I mean, if Theophilus had already read chapters 1 through 4, which I think he has, he might have read about the establishment of Jesus as the Son of God, and then he reads this account. And then he thumbs back through to Isaiah, and then he thumbs through back to the book of Kings, and he might rightfully conclude that the Jews in the synagogue were the real threat. So the only question remains, how do we interpret this? And more importantly, how does it apply? Here's your first application. This one's going to take a while. (laughs) Do not assume salvation is deserved. And again, we already kind of made light of that earlier. Be very easy to do that. But first, let me speak to those of you who profess to be Christians. Probably most of you. We're going to take the test that I mentioned earlier. And so as Jesus did, though I don't know your hearts as he does, let me tell you a story, which then you can use as a test to show how much you might think you deserve salvation. Let me tell you a story. Say you visit a church in rural America. You take your family with you or a couple of friends. And there's row after row of visitors. And you have no clue if they're saved or not. You don't know. And then, all of a sudden, as the pastor is getting up to preach, a bomb goes off. And you're the only one left. Everyone else is dead. A religious extremist group in another country quickly takes credit. And then, unexpectedly, a few years later, a Christian missionary in the country of that group opens a church and everyone in that extremist group gets saved. Everyone. Here's the test question. Do they deserve it? How do you feel about that? All those visitors. Dead. Your family, your friends, dead. These guys get saved? What about these guys? What do you think? How'd you do? I mean, I admit, it's it's kind of an unfair test when you consider the implications that Jesus lays out here because really who deserves to be saved I mean it's called salvation did did Israel deserve it how about Naaman did he deserve it does anybody deserve it That's why I'm using air quotes around the words deserved and undeserved because nobody deserves it. 
So the second you think you deserve salvation, you fail the test. That's the test. And a whole synagogue has failed. How about us? But what Jesus does after he leaves is remarkable. Because what he does is he then goes to other people. The humble. People who look on his gift and they take it. Because they know they don't deserve it. Let's consider this test question and let's dig a little bit deeper. Because that that story was a bit remarkable. Probably won't happen. What type of person do you see as undeserving? Maybe the criminal. Maybe somebody who's done something to you. Maybe the atheist who's just bold about it. Maybe the young. Maybe the old. For me, when I was in college, it was the frat guys. Lifelong church kid, you know. I was just so polite. And then I would go door to door starting up Bible studies. But if a room had certain music or certain posters, I would often find a reason in my mind to keep walking. Peter knows. I think he went with me a couple times. (laughs) Now, things are a bit different for me now in terms of the frat guys, but I have a new problem because I'm an elder and I preach. So let me admit something. If a certain type of visitor came in here, maybe a single parent with a whole bunch of loud kids, or somebody kind of covered in tattoos or piercings and every other word is profanity and they're sitting in the back like this, you know what? I would probably at least think a little bit in the back of my head Maybe this isn't the place for you. But the truth is this. I'm exactly as undeserving of salvation now as the moment I walked in the door. And so are you. And that's how we pass the test. Because when you do that, when you start to understand that, two things happen. First, everybody in here starts looking more like a brother and sister and less like an opponent to you. And secondly, anyone out there or who comes in here is fair game to hear the gospel. Because you're starting to look at the heart. And not the outward appearance. And that's how God looks at people. So who's your type? Who's the type of visitor that would maybe come in and you'd have a problem with them?
Or maybe, who is it already in here? That's the good news, though. Whether they're out here, out, out there or in here, nobody is too good or too, be, too bad to hear the gospel one more time. Nobody. Speaking of which, let me now talk to those of you who are skeptics or you're seeking Jesus. This application, this story, is perhaps more of an encouragement to you than anything else. Don't think that you have to deserve salvation. Because you really can't. Don't think you need to clean up your life first. And then God's going to welcome you in. You can't do this. And so, the way that you can respond is to stick around. To learn more about this teacher, Jesus, and come back. Next week, we have a new members informational session. Come to that. Because in short, if you're a bit messy, you're going to fit right in here. Second application. This one will be way shorter. (laughs) Don't be surprised that your greatest enemies will be deserving people. Here's what I mean. Let's just say that first application either sets in or firms itself up in your heart and you get or keep a correct view of salvation and you're just really opening up and you're really winning people and you're telling everybody and this church really takes off. We got to start talking about getting another building or having two services, something like that. I mean, and we get all types of people. When that growth happens, you might be surprised at the conflict. Don't be. Because we're, we're all people from all nations. And some of us have nothing in common except Jesus. And the point is, from the text, that that's enough. That's plenty. But as we grow, we're going to bump into each other. Why did you invite that guy? You know? Do we really want this? For, I mean, we want to grow, but that guy? That family? You're going to think it at least. Don't be surprised. All I'm saying is that the, the biggest enemies of growth are not going to be the skeptics out there. It's going to be the religious people right here. We're the biggest obstacles to growth. And it will be difficult as we grow. I mean that. The biggest threat in this passage here was not Rome. It was the synagogue. So it is here. And I think that's a warning to us. So church, let us be united in our need for Jesus. Let's lead with that. Let's rejoice in the fact that we don't deserve salvation. And let's not get tired of saying that. Because the moment we do, we fail the test. Let us remind ourselves of this truth.
both now as we pray in our small groups and please throughout the week. Let's pray. Dear God, it is so easy for me to think that I've gotten myself so clean. It's so easy for us with our church clothes, with our platitudes of saying that we're doing fine, that we're blessed. It's so easy, even as Peter reminded us, to think that we just have to be so clean to be here. Lord, that is not true. Lord, we are undeserving people. So Lord, if we believe that, would you help us to fall on your feet, to fall at your feet, as the people in the synagogue should have done? Because if we do not fall at your feet, we will chase you. We will chase you out of our church. And that will be a terrible day. And we will not stop you if we do that. Lord, would you help us to know you and to love you more? And would you help us to extend that love outwards to other people? Amen.